0: Good morning, everybody. Um, I, I just need to, straight from the start, kind of confess that um, I didn't prepare for this sermon because, quite frankly, I didn't think we'd be here today. Um, but <laughs> but uh, here we are. So uh, if it, it seems a little bit disjoint now. Um, actually, I'm very glad that you know, it wouldn't have been that bad, let's be honest, like we'd be with Jesus and that would be awesome. Um, but I'm also happy that we're here because today is my anniversary and so Melissa and I are celebrating seven years and what better way to celebrate it than in two different parts of the state. Um, she's at the beach uh, enjoying and relaxing because of the hard work that she's had to endure for the last seven years and I get to spend some time with you guys. Um, and so both of us are very happy about that. Um, but by, by show of hands, how many of you are fans of history? In school, how many of you liked history class? Oh, that's good. That's that's a lot more than I anticipated. Um, but that's good. History is really important. For those of you who like it, you're gonna like, uh, you're going to like the next 40 minutes or so. For those of you who are not a big fan, bear with me. It's important, and we need it. Um, one of the things that I really struggled with in school, uh, in high school, I should say, uh, was caring. And uh, that sounds really bad. But I didn't really care about all of the subjects. I only cared about the ones that I was good at. And one of those subjects was history. Um, I, I, I got it. It was easy. It's memorization. I could do that. I could regurgitate facts on a paper and, um, and be done with it. Uh, but... oddly enough I didn't really care for English class which now English is one of my favorite things but I didn't care to read Shakespeare I didn't care to read any of these things Um, art same thing now I love art but uh, I didn't care about Rembrandt at all Um, and part of the reason that I didn't was because I Didn't see something that I kind of learned in college and have been piecing together since and that is that no one subject And and this might be a flaw uh, in the way that we teach, um, but no one subject happens in a vacuum Um, And so if I had realized sitting in art class looking at Rembrandt's work uh, that he was uh, part of the Reformation uh, contemporary to Luther and, and, and Calvin. And when I was reading Romeo and Juliet, saw where that fit in, in the course of history, I would have pieced together things that, that didn't really matter to me. Um, I would have put them in a context, in a, in a world historical context, that would have made them, frankly, interesting to me. I think it's very interesting to look at Rembrandt's art redemptively and to know that he was reformed. Uh, to know that he was a believer, uh, and that he was for uh, the, the, or against the papacy, uh, which was playing out very tyrannically, and he was for the, it's, to me, it's fascinating to see his work, and to see how Christ cares for the poor in his art. Uh, Before, I just saw art, and, and, for me at the time, that was, that was just boring, and I think even now my love for art has come because I see where each of the artists fit in the historical storyline. Um, for us, acts can be a lot like that, for me anyway. Uh, it's a bunch of stories. I, I'm, I'm a theology guy. Uh, some of you may know that. I, I love Systematics, I love biblical theology, all of of the different categories of it. And Acts is very hard um, to read because of that. Because, I mean, you get to Romans and it's just theology, 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 and you're like, yeah, I can get with this. Ephesians, same thing. Even in the Old Testament, as you look at covenant theology and how it plays out as the Lord speaks and manifests himself in the history of his people, but Acts is just a bunch of stories, or it was to me, just a bunch of stories. Um, and it was hard to apply them theologically. It was hard to kind of realize their historical context, and that's wrong. I mean, it was, it was terribly wrong, and God is convicting me of that. Um, but, as we've been studying through Acts, I've also been reading through a book called Backgrounds in Early Christianity, um, and I've been uh, reading a lot about uh, Roman history, and clearly this all happens under Roman rule, and so we're going to talk a lot about that and, and how, as we get a proper context of what's going on in history, how stories like Acts 24:22 through 25:22 make a lot of sense. And so before we even get into the word, let me, let me give you a, a background of where we are. Um, in, uh, on f- March 15th, the Ides of March, in 44 BC, uh, Julius Caesar was assassinated. Uh, there were factions from the government and there were factions from the military that had joined together and they basically just ganged up on him, beat him down, and killed him. Uh, and for, for a decade almost... Rome, which had been uh, a republic, which had been a superpower, was in chaos. There was calamity, and from that calamity rose a very, uh, really unusual figure. His name was Octavian, uh, and Octavian was Julius Caesar's adopted son. Uh, And when Julius Caesar adopted him was also kind of peculiar, because it was posthumously, it was in his will that he would adopt Octavian as his son. Um, And so Octavian rules for quite some time, and as Octavian rules, uh, the the period of time is known as something you may have heard of, the Pax Romana, the the Roman peace. Um, And what is really ironic about the Roman peace is that it's marked by a lot of dissension and and, uh, unrest in Rome. Um, And Octavian uh, became the first emperor of Rome, like the first true emperor who, who ruled uh, unilaterally uh, Rome. And, and in order to kind of establish this new order, Octavian decided hey, let's establish some order. And so, several years into his, his rule, Octavian made a decree uh, that there would be a census and that everyone would go back to their hometowns. And because of this census, a young boy named Joseph and a young girl named Mary traveled to Bethlehem. Um, And in this, the midst of the Pax Romana, angels break into the sky. And to shepherds, they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. In the midst of the Roman peace, which was not peace at all, angels come and say, here's one. Born this day a Savior, his name is Christ the Lord, and he brings peace. And this peace is not like the peace of Rome. This peace is not marked by war. This peace is reconciliation. It is true peace. And a couple of years later, uh, Octavius took on a new name. Uh, He took on the family name. He was adopted by Julius Caesar. And so he took on the new name, and his new name was (laughs) Ruler... Caesar, son of God, Augustus. Uh, Because Julius Caesar was deified. They said, after he had died, that Julius Caesar was God. And so, here comes into power this adopted son of God. Think about that. The adopted son of God comes into power, and he names himself that. He gives himself the title, ruler of Rome, son of God. Augustus. And that's the name that we've heard. Uh, And a little bit later, Augustus dies. And uh, Augustus actually does a very similar thing. He adopts a nephew, and uh, the nephew Tiberius becomes emperor. And Tiberius wants to be like Augustus in his power and in his majesty, but he's just not. He's, He's a guy that's kind of well, pretty much lame. It's Youth Sunday, right? We can use that word. Is that acceptable? Uh, I mean, he's, he's no Augustus, but he really wants to be. He has all the coinage changed to bear his image, um, which is actually quite interesting because uh, in a very political move, some Pharisees asked Jesus if they should pay taxes. And Jesus picks up a coin, and he looks at the newly printed image on that coin of Tiberius and says, Render under Caesar what bears his image and render under God what bears his. Uh, they wanted a political move because they had political unrest and Jesus gave them something completely different. But Tiberius, like his, fa- like his adopted father, takes on the name Son of God. And somewhere in the middle of Tiberius' reign, around 33 AD, um, this rogue. <laughs> This unheard of named Jesus, who's starting to get a lot of tension, uh, is crucified. And Cornelius, a Roman citizen, in the midst of Caesars who proclaim that they are the Son of God, makes a statement that is not just revelatory for us, but is political and is completely um, shaped by the environment he lives in. He looks at this man suffering on the cross, and he says, truly, he is the Son of God. And Jesus is the Son of God. The Caesars weren't. Do you know why? Because Tiberius later uh, is is assassinated. He dies. Uh, But three days after his death, Jesus rises from the dead. And he is alive. And he sits at the right hand of God. The emperors sit at the right hand of their father in the grave. Jesus sits at the right hand of God in the heavens the point of all this is that God is very intentional. As the world is shifting, as the world is moving towards just at an impressive, unbelievable rate, moving towards the West as we know it, the East is changing, everything is crumbling, there is disorder, there is disrest, God chooses to give us Jesus to come in flesh. But the story doesn't stop there, because after Tiberius is killed, uh, the person who killed him, uh, literally the person who held the pillow over his head, very gladiator-esque, holds the pillow over his head until he stops uh, fighting, um, becomes emperor. His name is Gaius. Some people call him Caligula. You may have heard of Caligula. Caligula was very popular um, <clears throat> Uh, in the early, early, early first century, right when the Christian population was forming. Uh, he was particularly popular uh, in places like Corinth and in, in parts of Galatia because he was vile. Uh, he would hold mass orgies, and he would make it a part of the, the, the reign and rule uh, that he had as emperor. Um, And and it's no coincidence that as Paul writes to the church in Galatia in the time of Caligula, He tells them to abstain from temple prostitution, from orgies and revelry. As he writes to the church in Galatia, he says, don't put on the fruit of the world, of the empire, put on the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the empire is maliciousness. It's violence, it's licentiousness, it's drunkenness, it's orgies, it's unbridled sexuality. But the fruit of the spirit is not like that. It's love, joy, peace, patience, etc. You know them. And it's right in the midst of an empire that he says this. Caligula doesn't last long because he is so debased. And finally, the people tire of him. Um, And and by the way, all of this is a great example of live by the sword, die by the sword. These guys are assassinating and killing and clawing and scratching to get into power. And that's how they leave power. Um, And so after uh, Caligula dies, (laughs) there's a weak fellow hiding Uh, in the shadows, as Caligula is beaten and stabbed several times, and his name is Claudius. Claudius is Caligula's uncle. And Claudius becomes Caesar. Uh, And Claudius has a slave. Uh, And the slave's name is Felix. Claudius loves his slave. And so he frees him, and he appoints him governor of Judea. And some years after he's appointed governor of Judea, he has to hear a case um, about this man named Paul, who's been preaching the gospel of the resurrection, something that none of the Caesars did. He's been preaching the gospel of the Son of God, who is the Prince of Peace, who, unlike the Caesars of the day, was raised from the dead, is not still in the grave. It's about the resurrection, and that's what we talked about last week. And so you come into the midst of this, and you meet Felix. And Felix was a slave, and he's been given this great position, and it's clear that he has a chip on his shoulder. Everything he does states that. He rules with an iron fist. He's a tyrant. He marries his first wife. She gets a little bit older. He's not really digging her that much anymore away with her. He marries the prettiest girl, according to... um, According to Tacitus and um, to Josephus, uh, in fact, the I think the literal translation of how Josephus describes Drusilla is "stone cold fox." Um, she is that um, good looking, and and she is young, younger than him, much younger than him. Um, I, I think. The idea of a trophy wife kind of comes into play, like he has to look the part, he has to play the part, Um, so much so that in the last chapter that we read, um, as they are bringing their charge against Paul, Tertullus uh, doesn't start out by saying, here's my case, hear it. No, without a shadow of a doubt that Paul is guilty. First of all, he has no case. But secondly, he's talking to a very pompous, insecure, violent man. And so basically, he says, oh, great Felix, the world has been a better place since you got here. Peace has ruled throughout the land. Not true. Blood was spilled more under Governor Felix than any other governor of that region. Um, and everybody loves you. Nobody liked him. Um, and so basically, as he begins to kiss up to this guy, um, <clears throat> you know, you, you can imagine that, that Felix is like, yeah, that's true. That's me. Um, and, and then he lays out probably the worst case against anybody um, ever in, in court history. Um, and then Paul comes up, and Paul is not like um, Tertullus. Paul's like, hey, I'm glad you're judged so you can make a ruling. I mean, that's really literally the point. And then he goes into his spiel and says this is basically about the resurrection. And there's something interesting about this, and that's what we're getting into, is that Felix Felix is kind of intrigued by this Paul guy. This Paul guy who doesn't who doesn't flatter, who doesn't you know and so in a in a half political move and in a half Genuinely intrigued, move. We get to where we are next. Now, this is what's going on behind the scenes, and this is why it's important. Claudius is go- Claudius is emperor. Uh, you ought to know that in the time period that we're reading now, Claudius is about to no longer be emperor. His time is short, <laughs> and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, let's get to the text. Now that now that we have a sufficient background, now that we know enough about Felix, now that we know enough about Drusilla. Um, let's see what is said in the text. So if you would, we're in Acts 24:22, um, stand with me and we'll read uh, through the end of the chapter. Um, we're going to be covering a lot more text than that, but this is what we'll read. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, that is the gospel, put them off saying, "When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case." Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla who was a Jewish who was Jewish and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about the faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment Felix was alarmed and said, go away, for, <laughs> go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Well, let's pray. God, we've learned a lot about the background of, of the Acts and, and where we are historically and, and, and the, the uncertainty that, that is facing Rome. Um, but as, as we look at Paul's interactions with these people, uh, may we be moved, may we be comforted, may we have hope. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Um. When Keisha originally asked me for the title of the sermon, um, I only half-jokingly said um, the title of the sermon would be, look on the bright side, you'll be dead soon. Um, And (laughs) I didn't use it for obvious reasons. Um, But when you consider Paul's situation, that's about all he can do. Um he is in and out of prison for the rest of his life, before different people. It's not a great situation. He's in house arrest. He has very limited freedom. He's not doing the things that he really wants to be doing. His heart is for the gospels and going out. He's he for the gospel and going out um, and he's confined. Um and in a little bit of time he'll be dead. And that will be his release. Um But for now, <laughs> Paul uses his situation for good. Um, If the first point of of all of this was that God intentionally places his people at a specific point in time in history for his purposes, for his glory, and for the advance of his kingdom, um, then the second point would certainly be that (laughs) we do not stand in judgment of the gospel, but that the gospel stands in judgment of us. And I want you to remember that, because we're going to be looking at that as we go through this text. And I want you to see that. Uh, the first person that stands in judgment of the gospel here is Felix. And that's what we've just read. Last week, that's what we read. Uh, Paul, is in, um, Paul is taken, and he's in trial, and Felix is presiding over the trial, and he has to hear Paul case, Paul's case, um, and there's no case against him. And so, so Felix says, you know what? Let's, let's wait on this for a while. And he invites Paul to his home. What is he doing with Paul in his home? He, he's, he's trying him. He's judging him. He wants to see if what Paul says in this, this, this stuff about the way is true. And, and as we go, Felix invites his wife because she's a Jew. And what he's just heard about the gospel is that it's just a sect of Judaism. And so Felix and his wife talk to Paul. Um, And just like in a lot of the book of Acts, we don't get the full conversation. Um, We just get a synopsis of it. Um, But based on what we know about Felix, and based on what we know about what Paul said, uh, and what we read last week um, about the offerings, and the resurrection of Christ, and the purification and forgiveness of sins, um, we can suppose with with pretty decent confidence what Felix asked. Felix was a tyrant. He was a slave who was free, who was still thinking that everyone was looking at, looking at him as a slave. And so he was vicious. He had multiple wives. Drusilla was number three, actually. Um, he, he killed people, <laughs> Without cause, he was a murderer. He used his power to do it. And so he's sitting before Paul, and you can imagine the question he asks is, um, why do you talk so much about forgiveness of sins? And we look at Paul's response, and we see that Paul must have started with the law. He must have. And he said to, to Felix and Jusilla, look, God created us. God is good. And he gave us law. Even before Moses, even before Abraham, he gave us natural law. And we did not follow it. Um, But in his compassion, he chose the Jews. And he gave the Jews the law. And still, we did not follow it. We're murderers. Felix, you've killed people. Guess what? I've killed people. We're lustful. We're, we're depressed. We're not, not that depression in and of itself is a sin, um, but that we feel the weight of the curse so much uh, that we are depressed and we're miserable people, and, and and there's great irony in the fact that Felix's name means happy, but all the historical accounts of him shows him as anything but. Uh, he is one of the least happy people, uh, at least in Josephus um, in his in his historical accounts of the time. Um, and, and Paul is saying, look, the reason that you do these things, the reason um, that you live this way, is because you do not hold. God as king, and it says they reasoned about righteousness. What does it mean to be righteousness? Is righteousness what you do? I mean, this is a good question for us. Is righteousness something that you do, or is it a, or is it a standing that you have? Is it positional, or is it an action? Is it positional, governed by actions, in other words, righteousness is where you stand with God. Are you right with God? Right standing with God is righteousness. And your righteousness is hindered by the fact that you do unrighteous things. And he's reasoning with them, saying, You're not a good governor, you're not Felix, you're not happy. Because you're so unrighteous. You live in your unrighteousness as I lived in my unrighteousness. And they reasoned about that. And then they reasoned about self-control. Married three times. Kills without thought. Self-control might be an issue. I mean, it's no coincidence that they reason about righteousness and self-control. And here's the thing, is when we talked, when I just alluded to it earlier, about <laughs> the fruit of the flesh that is exhibited from Caligula to Claudius, all the way to the guy who is about to come into power as this text, um, as this story is happening, a guy named Nero. Um, just to kind of show you where all of this is is connected. Um, Felix, who Paul is talking to, was a trusted slave of Claudius, who's the emperor, and convinced Claudius to marry Nero's mother and adopt Nero as son. Um, And so all of this is connected. Paul is now one degree away um, from Nero, uh, the great persecutor of the Christians. But they reason about righteousness and self-control, um, and, and the fruit of the flesh are anything but self control. But what's that last aspect of the fruit of the spirit that's meant? It's, me- it's self control. God calls us to be self controlled people. And He says, Look, Felix, your, your unrighteousness is more than anything rooted in your idolatry that manifests itself as a lack of self control. And here's the thing. Um, If you are not a self controlled person, you are (laughs) self absorbed and idolatrous. That's a hard word. And it's very likely how the conversation with Felix progressed. Because the next thing that Paul and Felix reason about, and, and Drusilla, Drusilla gets what's going on here. She's a Jew, she knows the Tanakh, she knows Torah, she knows law she's not unfamiliar with the things Paul is saying. Now here's where she differs. She does not affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Felix, who's a Gentile, and Drusilla, who's a Jew, now can enter into the conversation standing in the same place. They are not self-controlled. She's been married before. She divorced her husband, which never happened, never happened, but she did. And she's here now with Felix. She's unrighteous. And because of that, they have to talk about judgment. Why did Christ rise from the dead? Why did Christ die? Christ died so that he could take our judgment. Christ, on the cross, drank the wrath of God. It was poured out on him, and he swallowed every last drop. He was judged for us. And if you do not believe in him, and very specifically the resurrection of Jesus, then you will face judgment. And look, there are a lot of people who are writing books and preaching sermons and and talking about the fact that judgment is not what you think it is, and it's not forever. And those people are preaching a different gospel uh, they are part of a different faith. There are some people who are saying the resurrection uh, was just uh, a, a, it was a story to help us realize psychologically and emotionally and spiritually what's happening in you as you begin to live like Jesus lived, and those people are preaching a different gospel, and they are not a part of the Christian faith. And there are some people who are very popular in shaping theology today who will say that the cross, if the cross was God's judgment poured out upon perfect Jesus Christ, if it was substitutionary atonement, then that is the equivalent, uh, the equivalence of celestial child abuse, um, that it could not be that. Um, and, and, they, and there are people shaping theology today. Um, and, and if you believe that, if you say that, You are a part of a different faith. Look, Paul writes to the Ephesians around this time. (laughs) And in this time, Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, look, um, put off the old self, put on the new self. Um, Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like Rome and their kings. Be like Jesus, who is our king. And, and live in light of the truth that you learned, the truth that is in Jesus. He doesn't say Christ because Christ is a title. He says Jesus because Jesus is a historical figure. History is important. Jesus was a historical figure, and we believe in the historicity. We believe in the events of Jesus' life. We believe that Jesus is God in flesh, that he lived perfectly, that he died for our sins. He took our place. God poured out his very real, very true wrath on him. He drank it. He died. He he took our sins. He rose again. He defeated death. And he ascended into heaven where he reigns as the only son of God who is still living. And we believe only in the truth that is in Jesus. And it is belief in that truth that makes effective the saving work of Jesus. And so if you don't believe any of those things, even if you believe all the rest of them, if you don't believe one of those things, you are not a Christian. You are something else. Because if any of those things aren't true, you have to save yourself. And Christianity is the only religion where that's not the case. Furthermore, Paul says in Timothy, when he's writing to Timothy around this time, he says, look, God wishes that everyone would come to saving knowledge of him. God wishes that every man would be saved and believe in the truth, come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul unites those two things. Being saved is coming to a knowledge of the truth. And here we are. He's reasoning with them and he's saying these things Look, your power, your relationship to this so called self titled son of God, it's going to do you no good. And the fact that you're a Jew, please, you're not even acting like a Jew. You're not even acting out of the law. Like you, have, you are unrighteous, you have no self-control, and so they, ra- they reason about the judgment to come because that's the only other option. We don't like to talk about judgment. Paul didn't shy away from it. You can talk about judgment without being judgmental. You can make judgments without being judgmental, and you need to. It is important. And clearly, Felix and Jusilla heard what Paul said. They came in standing in judgment, thinking anyway, they would stand in judgment of Paul and the gospel. And instead, the gospel stands in judgment of them. And the Bible says this um, Felix was alarmed. Uh, Better translation, he was afraid, he was shook. Felix knew what Paul was saying was true. But he would not give himself over to it. That, that is fear. And he should have been afraid. So he says, look, go away. I can't bear this right now. I cannot hear this. He was afraid, but he he was not done with Paul because over the next two years, he has more conversations. And I'm sure they all ended the same way. Look, just go. Just go. I can't do this right now. I don't i want to think about this. Um, I, I, I don't want a part of it. Um, but look... Nobody stands in judgment of the gospel. And I'm, I'm going to say this over and over again so you remember. The gospel stands in judgment of us. It's a lot like um, Charles Spurgeon, a pretty famous quote by Charles Spurgeon The word of God is like a lion, it doesn't need us to defend it, just to set it loose. That's the reality of the gospel. Like we don't, Paul, Paul did not try and defend himself. Paul did not try and, and... They didn't reason about the existence of God or the age of the earth. He preached the gospel. Um, and so, as we move on, uh, we find that in this two year, these two years of conversations, we're going to drop back to history. Uh, Claudius, who was Caesar... New Caesar in power, Nero. Nero's actually kind of a cool guy at the time. He doesn't have this big hatred of Christian things. Um, that, that comes later. Um, and so Nero looks over the entire empire and, and he gets <laughs> he gets word of how bad Felix is. So he's like, Alright, Felix, you're done. You're part of the old regime, you're done. And so uh, he sends Festus to take Claudius, or to take Felix's place. And so Festus comes sent by Nero at this point, And he comes to here, and, and, and let's read, and, and uh, we're going to make one, maybe two more points and, and be done, uh, because we're going to see a lot of the same here. Three days after Festus had arrived, which is very funny, He's just appointed governor, and the very first thing, I mean, three days after he arrives, basically he unpacks, he and his family choose who's going to have what room. They drive around their, you know, Caesarea to kind of see where everything is. Oh, there's my Bojangles, that's where I'll be going to eat. You know, whatever. All right, now it's business time. And, and the first point of order is, hey, man, deal with this Paul guy. <laughs> How amazing is that? I mean, Paul, Paul was relatively unheard of, except in, in, in specific areas of Judea, um, maybe 20 years ago, 20 years prior. Um, and now the first point of order from Nero to Festus in Judea is to deal with this Paul guy and all this resurrection mess. What is going on? Felix can not handle it. You handle it. Fix it. Um, And he went up three days after he had arrived to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem. Because they were planning on ambushing him and killing him on the way. Festus is not like Felix. Felix is all about the political game. Felix is all about, you know, having his ego massaged. Festus replied... You know, he's there for business. Three days later, he's there for business. Anyway, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring up charges there. Festus is like, look, I don't want to hear it. I'm a busy man. If you have a problem with Paul, he's in Caesarea. That's where I'm going. I'm not going up there to bring him back down so that you can talk about him. You come up with me. After he stayed among them uh, not more than ten or eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, I'll give you a choice. Because really, this is outside of what I need to be spending my time on. You can either go down to Jerusalem. Do you wish to go up uh, Sorry, up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Um, or the other option is you can appeal. And, and Paul says, look, <laughs> that's a paraphrase. Uh, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is, any, if there is nothing uh, to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Um, and so Paul says, look, I want to go before Nero. And what's interesting in this is that Festus comes to be judge over Paul and over the gospel. And he thinks that he's in control. The way that he talks to the Jews, the way that he talks to Paul, he thinks that he's in in control. But Paul reminds him, look, you're you're not. You're at best third in command, at best. Um, Send me to Caesar. Caesar. And we see in his next conversation, uh, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king of Bernus, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, "There is a man left prisoner by Felix." And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Now, that's very interesting. What's the case? The case is, the Jews are saying, Paul is speaking against the temple, he's speaking against Rome, he's disobeying customs, he's being unruly. Um, As the the hearing goes on, somehow Paul manages to turn it into a discussion about the history of of Jesus and, and the resurrection. And so Festus now, who's thinking he's hearing this case about this evil anarchist, <laughs> is now being confronted with the gospel. And again, he thinks he's standing in judgment, but he's not. His response is a lot different than Felix. Felix is intrigued. He's not. Look, it's, it's some dispute within their religion about Jesus, and if he was alive again, it seems kind of foolish to me. It's kind of the tone with which he says it. Um, being at a loss Uh, how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go up to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. So now the king. (laughs) Two governors and a king. Paul gets to share the gospel to him. Tomorrow, Festus said, "'You will hear him.'" So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, "'King Agrippa and all who are present with us, uh, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting out that he ought not live any longer.'" But I found that he has done nothing deserving death, and he himself appealed to the emperor. I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to in- indicate the charges against him. And so what we get is the beginning of another scene where some man thinks he stands in judgment of the gospel and of Paul. And Paul is about to bring the gospel. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it really is amazing how time and time again, the Jews, um, Tertullus, uh, Felix, Festus, now Agrippa, they all sit here and they think that somehow they are going to be the ruling. Because here, here's what the Jews think. Paul is the big man. He is the, the leader of this, this cult movement called Christianity, and if we can take him down, then the whole movement's going to go down with them. And so person after person is looking for any reason, just one reason, to take him down, and each time they leave, offended and convicted by the gospel of truth. Are you, are you, <laughs> are you at all surprised? That Paul writes to the Romans that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God are you at all surprised as you read the rest of the epistles and you see the boldness and the clarity with which Paul speaks to you at all surprised look Paul's on trial most of us would be really scared and Paul may have been scared I don't know um, But all he does is preach the gospel. Like he never once really addresses, I mean really and deeply addresses, you know, here's my alibi, here's where I was, you can verify that. He doesn't really address like the charges brought against him. He just preaches Jesus and him resurrected. (laughs) And he just keeps on living. I mean, it's tremendous. And what's about to happen here um, after he stands before Agrippa and we'll be done? He is about to spend the next several years traveling to Rome. Um, And in that time, he will stand before Nero. Nero will put him under house arrest. Rome will burn. Nero will blame it on the Christians. His mom will die. Reverse that. His mom dies. Nero starts to go crazy. Rome burns. He blames it on the Christians. Where's that Christian guy I met? The one. Paul. Paul is killed. And then the gospel advances throughout Rome and thus all of Europe and thus all of the West and thus all of the world. God orchestrates history. He puts his people right where they're supposed to be in history so that his kingdom could advance, so that his gospel could be proclaimed. Each one of you sit here at a very unique time in history. And you are not here, it is not by accident that you were born now and not 200 years ago or not 200 years later. God has brought you here so that you could be a part of this movement that changes the world. Armed with the gospel, how will you live in this time? What will you devote your lives to? How assured how sure are you of the power of the gospel? Let's pray.